What is a uh, joy to be here at Outward Church this morning. Um, if Marysville is not hip and not cool, if you've seen the TV show um, Parks and Rec, it's like Pawnee, Indiana. Um, so like Salem, but not as cool. So um, my name's Chris. I'm here with my wife, uh, Tara. Um, I'm a prodigal son, and so I've been given the gift of a, a beautiful, lovely, virtuous wife that I don't deserve, which is just an evidence of God's grace in my life. We have six children that all look like her, uh, and so that's an evidence of God's common grace to the world, um, that they all look like her and not me. Um, it is a, a, just a joy to be with you guys um, here this morning. And so uh, I'm the lead pastor at Damascus Road Church in Marysville, Washington, where we say we are saved by Jesus' work, changed by Jesus' grace, and living on Jesus' mission. And we just say that because we're not as, as concise as Matt uh, is here with Love Jesus, Live Outward. So we had to have like three sentences to do uh, our deal here. But we're going to be working through um, the first chapter the book of Jonah today. And so I know you guys have kind of been in a New Testament series for a while. Matt's series sounds um, awesome. And as I even say Jonah, I know some of you kind of know a Bible school version of that or Sunday school version of that. You kind of know the story. It's a pretty simple plot, right? You've got um, this, um, this uh, prophet who's been called by God to go to this city of sin uh, and to tell them to repent. He rejects and rebels God's call in his life. He goes and runs away. Um, right? There's something about a, a, a a big fish that shows up, which just kind of sounds kind of weird to our modern ears. Uh, and then he ends up going um, to uh, the town, and, and the mission's accomplished. But he's still pretty grumpy about it. And so um, it is this shallow story that even like like little kids get the plot points of Jonah. And yet, it's it's this story that is deep enough and rich enough that theologians for years, uh, for for actually centuries, have tried to explore its depths and really say, hey, what can we learn as disciples of Jesus in whatever time and place that we're in to, to learn what it means to follow the God of the Bible? What do we learn about God's character? What do we learn about his attributes through this? And so um, what you see in Jonah is, yeah, there's a lesson of rebellion and obedience. There's this superficial prayer um, uh, given in the middle and this picture of deliverance. Um, but I want to just get into the Bible now. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Jonah chapter 1. If you've got the app, you can swipe that. Just know you're a little less holy than everyone that brought their Bible today. Um, so like this is Oregon Trees died for this, so let's not let them die in vain, okay? Um, so bring your Bibles um, or use the app, outwards on it, they're, they're cool. Um, so all right, Jonah verses 1 through 3. We're just going to work through this chapter today. Jonah 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with, with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. We'll just, we'll just stop there. So we see that Jonah has been given this mission of mercy to this city, and his response is not active obedience. I mean, if you, you know your Bibles at all, like the, the other Old Testament prophets are always sent to go somewhere and they just kind of get up as these holy superheroes and say, yes, Lord, send me, I'll go. And Jonah is like most of us who God tells us to do something and we're like, yeah, I don't like that idea. I'm going to go do something different. And so here's Jonah walking in active disobedience and it's just counterintuitive to, to what you think should be happening in a story like this. And so while Jonah's a prophet, the lessons that we learn as disciples isn't from the prophecy that he gives to the people, but it's really in the journey that he goes on. So we learn about uh, what we need to be as disciples and what it means to follow the God of the Bible from the narrative of the story. And so despite Jonah's sin, despite um, the sin of pagans and prophets, God shows his deeper mercy in this. And so Jonah begins with God being given, uh, given him a, a mission to deliver a message to the city of Nineveh. God says, go. Jonah says, no. And so if you grew up in the church or you're just kind of predisposed to religion, meaning what can I do in my life to earn God's favor so that he will smile upon me, and you just kind of come in with, with well, the Christianity or the gospel is really just about religion and what you can do to earn your way to God's graces then this story would read very different. 
The story would read like this. It would, it would look something like this. That if it's only about religion, only about obedience, only about um, what you do and not what Jesus has done in your place, and if God was only a God of justice, then this would be a very short story because it would just say, God, God would say to Jonah, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. Jonah would respond as he did, no, no I'm out. And then God just sends the lightning bolt. Jonah's dead. He's gone to eternal damnation. He's received the just cause of what he deserves for offending the creator of the universe. And it'd be a really short book. And maybe even you've been taught Jonah from the standpoint of, well, Jonah disobeyed God, but then he obeys God. So, you know, be a good boy and little girl and obey Jonah or rather obey God right away. And so you get a, a good lesson from that, that, yeah, disobeying God leads to destruction. The application, obey God. End of story. But that's not the gospel. That's religion that says somehow in your efforts, who you are, your righteousness can please the creator of the universe. And so it's not good news to just tell people, obey God. Because here we are in the middle of the Bible, and here's this guy called by God who completely walks in disobedience. And so God doesn't immediately discipline Jonah. In fact, we start to learn about God's deeper mercy at the beginning of this chapter. See, mercy is when you don't get the justice you deserve for your wrongdoing. Right? So when your kid acts up and you decide to not discipline them or not give them the full consequence, you're showing mercy. When you get pulled over, as we almost did driving down here from Washington because we were late, um, the, the, and, and the cop lets you off, you're getting mercy. And so what happens is Jonah doesn't get justice right away. In fact, he's allowed to continue to walk in disobedience. Right? He, he arises but doesn't go to Nineveh. If you don't know the geography, and I don't expect that you do, but like Nineveh would be up like by Bend. And Jonah gets up here in Salem and he starts going to Manzanita. Like the complete opposite direction. See, I contextualized it for the group, right? You know, I use different things up in Washington. Okay. And so here you are. His disobedience at first doesn't appear to have any consequences at all. He has completely rejected a word from the God of the universe, and nothing happens. He ignores the mission of peace he's been given. He actively moves in the opposite direction. He doesn't remain where God has spoken to him. He arises. He isn't struck down. He goes down to Joppa without incident. There even seems to be this providential provision. Like, he gets there and like, wait, there's a boat that's getting me even farther away from the presence of God? He's like, let me go on this boat. I'm going to start heading to Tarshish, which is all the way out in Spain. So Jonah starts in kind of Israel, goes to the shore, and then he's on a ship to Spain. And so he's thinking, hey, I want to run away from God. I think this is actually working out pretty well. And so Jonah is now on this ship, and he can't easily turn back from his disobedience. Right? When you're, when you're walking from Jerusalem to Joppa, at any point you kind of feel like this sense of like, okay, Maybe I should listen to what God has to say and I'll start going back the other direction. But at some point in your life, you begin to walk in so much disobedience from God that it almost feels like you're on a ship where like, I, I kind of can't have to keep going down this path now. I'm in this relationship and if I, if I keep, I, I kind of am stuck and I can't get out of it. So, if, so I might as well just keep walking in disobedience. Well, I, I've kind of found myself in this situation at work and, and, and I started in disobedience, but I, I kind of just have to keep following it through. And so the ship has sailed, and Jonah's opportunity to repent uh, seems like it's gone away. And when we begin to walk away from God, and we attempt to flee his presence, you see that three times in this chapter. It says that Jonah was trying to flee the presence of the Lord. Just like the beginning of the Bible, when, when Adam and Eve uh, have sin and shame, and God shows up, and, and he start, calls out to them, and they go hide in the bushes. Like, you can hide from God. And so... When we try to flee God's presence and pursue sin, there's rarely anything that impedes us right away. And so there's not even really much of a sting that's felt when you begin to walk in sin. So you know that you're supposed to have a mind that is pure to not lust after uh, someone, and, and, so, and yet a thought enters your head, and a search turns into a click, and then you shut your phone off, a little later, and you set it down, nobody was impacted. No harm, no foul. 
Or maybe you're at work, right? And, and um, you know you've, you're supposed to work to the Lord and, and then all that you do to, to work well, and yet, yeah, I'll just start fudging on my time card. I'll just fudge the expense reports a little bit. Nobody notices. You get a little bump in pay. No consequences. Or you're married and you're kind of feeling a little disaffected in, in your marriage and I'll maybe I'll go on Facebook and find an, an old boyfriend or girlfriend. And you message with them and you, look, you, you stop and look at their feet a long time, right? And you message with them and eh, it's innocent enough. And it starts going down a path. Okay, maybe that's not you, but let's, like, we're a culture that is in insane amounts of debt. And so maybe you start to spend more than you earn. And with every swipe of that card, it doesn't feel like there's any consequences. In fact, it actually feels pretty good, right? You know, another, another latte, another dinner out. In fact, you know, you got your phones now with Amazon. You just put a thumbprint. Three days later, it's at your house. And then the bills come. And then your marriage is falling apart. Now you're addicted to pornography. Now you're, you're uh, in some other form of addiction. Or you're enslaved. And all of a sudden the consequences start to well up and you're spending uh, all this time and energy. And, and so while Jonah gets on the boat and thinks that it's all going to be smooth sailings, there is a reality that while you're allowed to walk in disobedience for a while, at a certain point it is good and right and just for God to bring pain and consequences as you continue to walk in disobedience. And so we tell our kids all the time when we are disciplining them, and we need to do a little bit more. I mean, if they're acting up in outward kids, you know, they're the pastor's kids. What do you expect? But, but it's not all smooth sailing because there's a reality that what we tell, we tell our kids, sin hurts and sin has consequences. Sin hurts and sin has consequences. And so let's keep going here, verses 4 through 6. We're going to begin to see that Jonah can't flee from God's presence so easily. Verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid because their pitching is bad and they're 25 games under 500 and the season is over. Sorry, it's bad in Seattle, right? I mean, I think your Kaiser volcanoes could probably take them out, all right? And so, okay, we're just going to get distracted. I do this often. You'll, you'll just stick along. Okay, back to the Bible um, in the paper. All right, um, the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. All right, let's start breaking down this text. It begins with, but the Lord. When you read in the Bible, but the Lord or but God, what means is that what's about to, to come after that in your Bible is our beautiful phrases, beautiful acts of mercy, justice, grace, and redemption because while man has been allowed to go in sin, to walk in disobedience with almost no consequences, now God has shown up and he is intervening in the story. So God got the first word of the story, Jonah rejected it, just like the Bible begins with God creating all things beautiful and humanity's rebellion, and now God responds with pursuit. And so, in this case, God shows mercy by not allowing Jonah to continue to run from him and his will without consequence. See, if God wanted to, he could have just let Jonah keep going on the ship in Tarshish, allow him to run from him, and allow him to not suffer any consequences through his entire life. And that fleeing from the presence of the Lord would have led to failure of the mission that God has to save lost people in Nineveh. But Jonah could have gone on the boat. He could have made it to, to Tarshish. Uh, and, and all the while, living out his days, always fleeing from the presence of the Lord all the way to his eternal damnation. See, Jonah thinks if he just keeps running from God, he can overcome God's will for his life or his plan of salvation for his people. Jonah's a lot like us because we run and flee from God's presence all the time. 
there's a reality that the reason that we run from God's presence is because we know we're guilty. We know we're guilty of sin. And guilty people run, right? Criminals run. You ever watch the TV show Cops? I'm pretty sure they film it here, right, in Salem, um, right? And, and, and so, like, like, they're always chasing guys down and wrestling them to the ground and stuff like that. They're always, you know, guilty people run. Um, I got to experience this uh, about seven years ago, and I just shared this with my church last week. I'd actually waited to share this story for seven years because I didn't want to just cram it into a text. Um, but imagine about seven years ago, I'm, I'm in Vancouver, Washington, my hometown. Uh, I'm at a Starbucks in Main Street. I'm prepping for a sermon back up in Marysville. Uh, and uh, seven years ago, it was about 35, 40 pounds heavier. It was a hot day like this, so normally I just wear flip-flops and shorts from Costco because I've got six kids. I can't afford to get clothes from anywhere but Costco. Uh, and so uh, I'm there, and I'm looking out uh, the window, and I see a guy running down the street in jeans. And there's a fundamental truth of life that if someone is running in jeans, something bad is happening, right? No one runs in jeans, like, for playing, playing to. So I stand up, I'm like, this is odd, and I kind of walk to the door because I'm a little hyperactive. And, uh, and all of a sudden, then I see this cop come around the corner. And I can see the cop on one end of the block and the guy in the middle of the block and the distance is getting farther and farther because the guy's a little, he's a little lighter and sprightlier. The cop's you know, kind of more um, Chief Wiggum-ish. Um, that's from The Simpsons. Most of you weren't alive when that show came out. Um, and so uh, anyway, he's a big guy. And, and, and I hear the cop yell out, and I, this cannot be standard operating procedure, someone stop that man. And I'm thinking, I'm someone. And so the guy runs by two Mormon missionaries on bikes. They do nothing. And the cop, like, admonishes them later. I'm sorry if you're LDS. Like, welcome to Outward. Um, we preach a little different Jesus here. Um, but so, so I start to take off down the road after this guy. But I'm on the opposite side of the street. He has no idea I'm coming. And I did play football in high school badly. I was in the marching band and knowledgeable. That was my claim to fame. Um, but I did know, like, like coach said, hey, get an angle on the guy. So I got an angle on him. He's running down. He has no idea I'm coming. I'm in flip-flops, running down the street. He comes around the corner. There's a subway on the corner. He comes around, and I come up behind him again. No idea I'm there. And this is the part of this. This is not pastoral hyperbole, what I'm about to say. This is 100% true, and it's insane. But I yell out, you can run from the law, but you can't run from me. And, and then like, like, and then I body check him up against a big Comcast van. And then the cop shows up. And I, was, yeah, I have no idea how that happened. Like I said, knowledgeable band nerd. This was the toughest moment of my life. And, and, and like people come out of the subway clapping. And somebody gives me a Starbucks card because that's my love language. Uh, and, and like it, it, was, it was just beautiful. But it's this moment of he's running, thinking he can get away, but justice is coming. And I know in this story I'm justice, okay? And, and as a pastor, I really do. Like, you need to, you're not part of my ministry regularly, but I really do try to avoid stories where I'm the hero. But, but it was just too perfect for the text, so I had to use it. Um, so, so let's get back to it, though. There's this idea you cannot outrun God. And as I was preparing for this sermon, um, this quote came up from this guy named Og Mandano, who's this like super salesy guru, but he has some truth, and he says, you can't conquer reality by running away from it. And I believe most of us think that if we don't like the reality that we're in, that we can just actively run away from it, and it'll, it'll still work out. But God's pursuit of his people is relentless. God's will cannot be overcome by our own and when we run from God, he's always able to run us down. Um, and so it's very merciful that God meets our disobedience. Like there's a reason James doesn't just say, well, you stumbled and fell individually. Or, you know, you had a chariot wreck or whatever they would have had back then, right? He says, no, it's a shipwreck. Because your sin and your disobedience ends up having an effect on other people. In fact, there's almost this new community created around Jonah's sin. And so where, where are you impacting others and affecting others that if you leave unaddressed will lead to great distress for those that are around you? How has your disobedience led to distress for others? And I want to be clear that the sailors and the others on the boat, like they're not exactly innocent, 
We'll learn here in a minute that they're, they're actually pretty pagan guys. They believe there's a whole bunch of different gods and they're pluralistic. But, but as we read through this text, just ask yourself if you think that the sailors just seem like better humans than Jonah. Right? I mean, they're industrious. They're hardworking. They're, they're kind of banding together to, to get this thing done. They're, they're gracious. Jonah's just checking out. And so when you're walking in sin, most of those around you, they're not perfect either, but they're not guilty of your sin. And yet, they're suffering for it because sin never stays contained. It will always impact and affect and, and infect others. And so the individual disobedience of Jonah quickly leads to, to corporate pain. Deep distress leads to great fear. These guys are in terror. And so um, we respond to deep distress in our sin or from the sins of others in a whole bunch of ways that we'll see played out here. In fact, I'm just going to work through very quickly seven ways that we work through the distress that comes from sin from ourselves or others that are ineffective. So number one, we see here in the text, the sailors, number one uh, way that we impact uh, or interact with distress, we cry out to empty gods or to any god at all. The sailors are experienced, they tremble in fear, they're pluralistic, each begins to kind of appeal to their own higher power, they're, you know, they're calling out to all these different gods, and all of their false gods are silent. They have no impact over the storm. They have no ability to keep the ship together. And so they just cry out to just about any god they can think of, hoping that they just hit, maybe hit all of them, that maybe, maybe something will, will stick and something will actually deliver relief or salvation. Um, there's this great cinematic work uh, from a few years ago called Talladega Nights, uh, the, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby. Uh, and, and it stars Will Ferrell. You know, he's just a great actor, always very serious. But he's this NASCAR driver. I'm not a NASCAR fan, so if you are, I'm sorry if I offend you. But um, he, he, he comes out of the car and he thinks he's on fire. And he starts crying out, help me, Jesus, help me, Jewish God, help me, Allah, help me, Tom Cruise. And everyone's like, you know, it's a farce, right? Tom Cruise is Scientologist. That's why he said that one. You'll get that one in the parking lot on the way home. Okay. Um, but here, here he is. It's a farce because he's just throwing things out, hoping that something will help him. In these times of distress, individuals begin to look outside of themselves because they realize the storm's too big for them. And the sailors are no different. And so while, you know, Ricky Bobby's kind of a joke, but we, you know, we say all the time that, that there's no atheists in foxholes, right? When the shelling comes in, when the storm comes in, here they are crying out. Um, and, and so everybody's looking for something bigger than them to ease the storm. Um, I'm a Northwest uh, cat. I, I grew up in, uh, born in Portland. I don't tell a lot of Washington people that I was born in Oregon. Um, but uh, I, I grew up in Vancouver. And growing up, I listened to, to Pearl Jam and Nirvana uh, and, and Soundgarden. And so like two weeks ago, Chris Cornell, the lead singer of Soundgarden, uh, at 52, committed suicide. And I loved his music because it was always kind of searching for a higher truth and it just had this ex uh, existential searching angst. But there's this line in this song as I was reading through old lyrics and listening to music and videos and all that for a couple days. Um, in in uh, his song from Audio Slave, Like a Stone, it says this. It says, On my deathbed, I will pray to the gods and the angels like a pagan to anyone who will take me to heaven. We're all searching for something to deliver us from the distress we find ourselves in. And I know as Christians, we, we do this, and you're like, well, hey, hey, I'm not going to cry out to Tom Cruise or Scientology or some other, uh, uh, you know, world religion, right? You know, you're, we're good Bible people, uh, and so and we're not going to switch teams, but we do this. When distress comes... We look outside of ourselves on how to navigate that distress, and I want you to ask yourself, like, what's the first thing you turn to when you find yourself in distress? Because most of us begin to just seek comfort. 
And so we drink a little more, have another scoop of ice cream, spend a few more minutes at the gym, call up that one good friend we have, watch Netflix for hours and hours and hours, just hoping to numb the pain, right? Like we do this. We just self-medicate, hoping that something will, will um, affect us and, and ease our pain for relief. And so what do you turn to first when you're in distress? Whatever that thing is, that's your God. That's the thing that you're looking to to deliver you from the distress that comes from sin. And if it's not Jesus, it's going to be ineffective. It will end up not holding the ship together, it won't calm the storm, and it will remain silent and powerless. All right, point number two, let's keep going. Point number two, the sailors clear the decks. So point number two, when we're in distress, we clear the decks. And so the storm is coming, and we see that if we can overcome the effects of the storm by just lightening the loads in our life, right? These guys are chucking everything off the ship. Uh, if we can just ease that, then maybe um, we can actually overcome the effects of the storm. And what they're doing is not in itself a bad thing, right? You're behind on a project at work, you know, you just work a little bit more. You know, you, you find yourself failing one of your classes, like, hey, I need to quit the extracurriculars, clear out my life, and just kind of focus. You're not getting sleep because you're overwhelmed with what's going on. You know, you just kind of need to, to pull back a little bit. And so the sailors are just exercising normal wisdom, like, hey, there are ways that God has called all of us to engage with the environments and the situations that we're in when we're in pain and distress. And so, hey, maybe I'll just kind of readjust and, and chuck a few things off and lighten the load and we'll make it through the storm. And that's okay to just overcome a regular storm. But in this case, in this case, this is an abnormal storm that's caused by sin. Wisdom and skill. And just arranging your life neatly and orderly cannot overcome your sin or the sin of others. And so while the sailors are just exercising normal wisdom, you, you have to actually look beyond something else. You can't just make structural changes. And so that's why when, when we you know, counsel people and we find out their marriage is in turmoil because of sin, we don't just rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic and say something glib like, well, you know what? Yeah, you got adultery in your marriage. You guys should probably just do a few more day nights. At a certain point, structural changes to your life will not overcome the storm that you find yourself in. Where are you making structural changes to compensate and mitigate the storms in your life when what God is calling you to do is make a heart change? Okay, number three. This one's super popular. Retreat and pretend everything is okay. So the pagan sailors are trying to find relief and just actively deploying wisdom. They're really working to overcome the storm. But Jonah, he's a religious guy. He's super spiritual. He probably even knows he's in a bit of a mess, right? He sees the storm coming and says, this is so massive, so intense. I can't deal with this. I'm going to go below decks and take a nap. And he just checks out. And so there's this storm, and, and here he is in the bottom of the ship, and, and here you are, or here someone is going down a path of disobedience, and you find out when you're walking in disobedience, everyone else around you is scrambling, trying to mitigate the effects of your sin on everyone else. And yet the nexus of conflict, the person who's actually walking in sin, oftentimes they're cool as a cucumber. Right? Maybe you've dealt with this if you have a friend or relative um, you know, who's been walking in, a, in addiction, chemical dependency, and, and, and like they're, they're just checked out. And the family spends hours and hours on the phone and messaging and texting, and how are we going to solve this problem with this person? How are we going to bail them out this time? How are we going to arrange things for them so that they can, can, can actually flourish? And they're checked out. They're not engaged at all. The storm still rages. The text actually says that he is fast asleep, meaning that he is in a deep, sweet sleep. See, there's this time where you're walking in disobedience and you think, you know, if I just check out a little bit, maybe it'll pass. And then I don't have to do any hard work. And nothing will change and I'll just wait for clearer skies. 
Now, I want to be clear that this is different. If you know your Bibles, that there's a, this um, time in the New Testament where you see that Jesus takes a nap on a boat in the middle of a storm. And, and so I don't want you to think that these are similar because uh, in that, the storm is raging um, and Jesus is taking a nap while his disciples are in peril. But the reason that Jesus can take a nap is because Jesus is in control of the storm. He knows what's going to happen. So it's perfectly appropriate for Jesus to be calm in the midst of that storm. Jonah's not in control. Jonah's in denial. Let's just pretend that nothing is going on. Jesus is sinless, and he knows the outcome. Jonah is guilty in the face of this unrelenting distress that he thinks he can just sleep away. And so I want you to ask yourself, where are you checking out when everyone else around you is scrambling and actively trying to, to improve the situation and to keep up with your storm. Okay, so we're down through three. All right, let's keep going in the text. We're gonna see that these are unaffected because these three things do nothing to ease or calm the storm. So let's go look at verses seven through 10. And they said to one another, come let us cast lots that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Yeah, um, and they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. We'll get back to that. The God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Okay, so the fourth way that we try to deal with distress in the storm, is we begin to seek the source of distress and just analyze. And so the sailors cast lots. Proverbs says that God determines essentially every roll of the dice. And so just as God controlled the storm, he controlled uh, the lot falling on Jonah. All is revealed. It is clear Jonah is the source of the storm that we are in right now. And even in the midst of the storm, as everything's raging around them, they just start asking all these weird questions. Well, tell us your job. What nationality are you? Show us your passport. What mission were you on? Like, they just keep asking all these things. And so we find ourselves in storms, and the storm still rages, but we want answers to the why. And so we start asking questions and discuss and deliberate about storms, seeking to understand what's going on. And so we're like, well, what happened to that person that caused them to walk in disobedience? Like, did their mom and dad not love them enough? Did they not make the right team? Did somebody reject them in high school? Like, what was the cause behind it? And all the while, you've done nothing to actually solve the storm. Endless discussion, endless analysis. Maybe if we, if we think wrongly, if we can just understand the storm, then maybe we can control it and navigate it better. And to Jonah's credit, he actually responds, and he kind of tells them what I think is, is um, versions of two truth and a lie. You ever play that game, right, where you say three things about yourself, two of them are true, one of them's a lie? And so he says, I'm a Hebrew, which is true. He says, there's one God, not many, one God in heaven who made the sea and dry land. Translation, there's a God who created everything. And that's true. But then there's this statement that he makes, and I, and I really hate to beat up on guys in the Bible, but, but uh, this is just rough. He says, I fear the Lord. I honor, serve, and worship the God of the Bible. And even if you're reading this for the first time, you've got to be asking yourself, really, Jonah? Like, really? You're, you're all in? Oh, yeah, I prayed a prayer at youth camp. Like when I was seven, I mean, the whole last 20 years of my life are, you know, total abject pagan worship, doing whatever I want. But yeah, back when I was seven at church camp, I, I prayed a prayer. No, he's completely walking in disobedience. And maybe he's just ashamed of his sin, but he, to Jonah's credit, I will say this, he does confess a little sin to sailors. He does tell him like, hey, I was on this mission, and so now I'm fleeing the presence of the, God, of the Lord, rather. And so sometimes you need to know that analysis can expose a problem. But it's not effective at providing solutions. And so where are you at a place you need to stop rehashing the issues that caused the storm and start actively walking out and looking for solutions? Like it's time to stop talking about why there's a problem here 
and start moving towards transformation and deliverance. All right, let's keep going. Jonah 11 through 13. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Okay. Number five, and how we address the distress of sin ineffectively. We just start desperately addressing the sinner. And so this is the time when you're finally in that situation where everyone knows what the cause of the problem is. They know who the person is walking in disobedience. It's time to, to kind of get that meeting together. Maybe it's, maybe it's even a full-on like intervention. And the person's in the middle there, and you're like, we know that you're causing the problems here. We know that you're walking in disobedience. But you have no idea how to solve the problem. So you make the mistake of asking them, help us help you. What do you, what do you want? What do you, what do you need? And everybody starts wanting to, to placate that person and, and, and see what they can do because they, they think that somehow the person that got themselves into the mess knows how to get themselves out. Are you kidding me? They're the source of the storm. All they know is how to walk in disobedience. They've displayed no ability to walk in repentance, to actually turn from disobedience and follow the God who made them. So at certain points, community or family identifies the source of the conflict, and they still just cry out to the source of the pain and say, can you just fix this? So where are you looking to the source of the problem to fix the problem. You need to look outside of the source of the problem. All right, number six. This is what Jonah does. Just falls into despair and seeks to disengage in a very dark way. People are conflicted on what Jonah's state is here as you read different commentaries, but I believe that Jonah has fallen so hopeless and hard-hearted that he's saying, it's better for me if I'm not even on the boat with you guys. Like, rather than actually working on my heart, I'm just going to check out and go to another church. Like, you know what, rather than me actually walking in obedience and leading my family and cultivating my marriage, I'm just going to check out and leave this relationship. I'm going to leave, abandon my family. Rather than solving conflicts with people around you, like, I'm just going to quit that job. I'm going to move that, leave that community. And, and, and for Jonah, it gets so dark. He's so discouraged that he begins to think that God's will for his people wouldn't be best served by him just repenting and walking in obedience. But just chuck me out of this boat and leave me here to die. Now, this is almost like a a church discipline situation, right? Like, come on. We want you to be part of this community. We want you to walk in obedience. We want you to walk in fullness of life that Jesus has purchased for you. Relent from your disobedience. And so it's, it's kind of that state of mind that this is actually a classic film, so there's no sarcasm in this part, but like, it's a wonderful life, right? I know it's like 97 degrees outside, but think to Christmas movies. It's a wonderful life, right? George Bailey just sees this storm happening in his community and his family and everything, and he goes to the end of the, the bridge and, and just says, I'm just going to check out. And, and he's given mercy to actually see what life would look like without him engaging in where God has called him to be. It's a, it's a classic. That actually is a good movie. I can't recommend Talladega Nights because I'm a pastor. I think I can recommend this, but if, if not, send Matt an email. This is my church. All right, let's keep going. Where has sin led you to so much distress that you have fallen into despair and you desire to just disengage? All right, last point. Number seven. This, this one, if, if checking out is popular, this might be number two or, or fight for number one on most popular. You can do what the sailors did. Just try harder. Right, in verse, uh, where is it here? Uh, Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard. In fact, my translation also can say, uh, they dug in their oars. 
The storm rages harder. Let's just work harder. The sailors don't give up. They're, sh- they're not even sure if they can trust what Jonah has said, so we'll give them some slack. But they're, they're not ready to actively send a man to his death yet. And so they do what we do when the storm hits. Let's just man up and work harder. And this is so popular because we think we can just overcome the storm. And so we, we, the reason that I believe that this is so popular is because it feels so good. It feels so good to think that your individual effort can somehow overcome the storm. And so you white knuckle and you're walking in sin and disobedience. You think, I can just overcome the situation that I've caused. Or we do this as well in community where we think, you know what, if we all just rally together, in fact, I bet like here in Salem, if we all just came together, maybe we could overcome systemic poverty in Salem. I mean, forget that there's a whole bunch of sin that, that causes that in a lot of different ways and don't hear me being ungracious, but like it's so popular because now all of a sudden you start to feel more powerful because when you're on that ship, even though it says it's threatened to be torn apart, here's a full crew just rowing. And they look side by side and they see somebody else with them and they're encouraged and they just keep rowing harder and yet nothing changes. Sometimes this happens pastorally, right? When there's this really difficult situation and we sound the alarm and all the elders and the community group leaders and the Bible study leaders, everybody gets together. Hey, we just got to talk about this person. We got, we got this situation, this marriage, this issue. Let's just all like swarm around. If we just love on them and we just practice community on them, we can fix them. And that's community, but it's not what we call at our church gospel community. That's just the idea that we're all better together. It's still powerless to overcome a supernatural storm. See, community is never enough to overcome sin. Community on its own is never enough to overcome sin. No amount of digging in deep, rowing harder from others can overcome when someone is hard-hearted and unrepentant. There needs to be a sacrifice. There needs to be a solution. There needs to be actual transformation. So where are you or a group trying to overcome the storm that someone else has caused without actually seeking to have their heart changed? See, the reason I walk through what these seven different ways are that we deal with the stress is to show you how ineffective they are. But I want you to know that there is good news, that there is mercy for Jonah, there is mercy for the sailors. And so let's, let's just read on here, verses 14 through 16, and then we'll close up here shortly. 14 through 16. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging and the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. I need you to hear this loud and clear this morning. We cannot get anyone else to repent of sin. And no one can repent of your sin but you. Individuals and community are not capable of fixing anyone at the heart level. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can do that. And so, I believe that if Jonah had been repentant, and said, you know what, guys? I think I can make this storm stop. I'm going to repent of my disobedience of walking from God. In fact, could you take this ship back to Joppa so that I can go to Nineveh? I believe that storm would have also ceased. That it, it would have been calm. In fact, actually, God probably would have given a gentle breeze that would have pushed that ship in the direction of Jonah's obedience. But that's not what happens. Jonah's so hard-hearted that no one can bear the cost of Jonah's sin. Only God can deal with it. And so at a certain point, the sailors, as gracious and as merciful as they are, they, they cry out to God. They're actually praying to God. Jonah hasn't prayed once yet in this text. They cry out to God, don't let his innocent blood fall on us, and they throw him into the sea after exhausting all these different attempts to solve or overcome the deep distress. 
They cry out for mercy. The storm calms. The ship is saved. These pluralistic sailors, they respond in this amazingly beautiful way of actually turning from all their false idols to worshiping the God creator of the universe. And they do so not so that he will save them. Right? That's religion. I'll cry out to God. Maybe he'll save me. And instead, they cry out and they worship God because he saved them. That's gospel worship. That's a response, not saying I want to earn God's salvation, but because God has already worked to save me, I'm going to respond with worship, praise, vows, and a life of deep devotion. And so there's a ton for us to to take away from this, and and I'm running out of time here, so I'm just going to hit a few things very quickly. Number one, God is able to use even your sin and disobedience and the distress it causes to still fulfill his purposes. See, God sent Jonah on a mission to preach the gospel to pagan unbelievers, and Jonah disobeys and finds himself on a ship full of pagans who end up repenting and trusting in the God of the Bible. And so don't hear an application point of like, hey, let's start this new uh, missions team where we just sin a bunch and hope that people will repent. Like, no, we, we don't sin so that grace may abound. But God is exceedingly merciful to even use your sin and disobedience to bring him glory to his people. As well, we learn that salvation has a cost. Jonah cannot remain on the boat. He has to go down so the ship can go free. And so while you can read and believe maybe wrongly that Jonah's sacrifice is somehow noble and worthy of praise, it's not. The sailors don't praise Jonah for suffering so they can be saved. They rightly direct their praise to who? To the Lord who controls the storm. And so while Jonah's sacrifice is is not um, that great, in fact, it's not even really capable of solving his sin, right? We'll see that if you read on in Jonah, you can read more about how God deals with Jonah. But it is a shadow a small, incomplete shadow of a greater sacrifice that comes. See, in the New Testament, Jesus actually says, someone greater than Jonah is here in me. And when Jesus goes and sacrifices himself on the cross and faces the greatest storm caused by human sin imaginable, the wrath of God coming on his son because of the disobedience of the sins of the world. Jesus bears that storm, and where that ship was threatened to be torn apart, Jesus' body is actually torn apart. And where the sailors are crying out and saying, don't put Jonah's innocent blood on us, even though Jonah isn't innocent, Jesus is sinless, is perfectly innocent, and his sacrifice saves us. That's why in a few minutes when we take communion, we'll remember Jesus' bloodshed in our place when we take the bread and dip it into the cup. And so for Jesus, in the face of this impending storm and arrest and trial and crucifixion, it says actually he's in the garden And he's so distressed that he cries out to God, my God, if if this is not your will, just take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. See, Jesus walks in perfect obedience where Jonah was disobedient. It says the distress was so intense that he's dripping uh, uh, sweat that it has turned to blood. And so here's Jesus, an innocent man who perishes, whose blood is a sacrifice that is laid on those who trust him. And so where Jonah is a sinful sacrifice, Jesus is a sinless sacrifice capable of saving all who cry out in distress. So wherever you're at this morning, in whatever storm you find yourself in or whatever disobedience you've walked in, you can cry out to Jesus today. And and I can't promise you that all the storms of your life will be calm, but I can promise you that Jesus is the captain of the storm and he has overcome everything that you could possibly imagine. And he has bared the sacrifice or rather the wrath that you deserve for your sin on the cross in your place. And so while the sailors are hoping against hope that maybe if they chuck Jonah out, maybe they'll be spared. The Bible says it's for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross in your place. And the reason that it can say that 
that Jesus had joy even on the cross was because while the sailors are just hoping maybe this will work, Jesus knows when he goes to the cross that he is purchasing salvation for his people. And so I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're Jonah and you're walking in disobedience and there's a storm around you and you're just checking out. I would beg you to wake up and see the effects of sin that will lead to distress now or eventually and simply repent and cry out to Jesus as your Savior. Or maybe you're the sailors and you are just exhausted and you have tried so hard to overcome the storm of your sin or the, the, the storm of the sins that others have caused around you and you are trying to fix everything. And I would just ask you to relent and rest in Jesus who commands the storm. And so whether you're Jonah in disobedience or the sailors and just need rest, all of us will find ourselves in a storm of sin at some point. And the only hope any of us have is to simply trust Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, you are good to us. You are good for us. God, I thank you so much. You do not allow us to continue to walk in disobedience, but in your mercy, God, sometimes you send storms. And Lord, maybe if some of us are walking in disobedience and the storm hasn't yet come, God, I pray that today's word would be an act of mercy. That those who know that they're walking in disobedience would repent and trust Jesus, who has lived the perfect life that none of us have lived, died the death that all of us deserved for sin, and has risen again so that we can have new life in this life and the life to come. God, I thank you that none of us has to be tossed into a sea of distress and, and, and death, but God, all of us have the opportunity of new life when we trust Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.